Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And once again, we are pleased to welcome Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Hello, Colonel. Yeah, hello, Brian. How are things out in Utah right now? Very spring-like and lovely. It's been like that here, too, although it's starting to feel a little more like summer here, Alabama. Well, it's obviously changes in the air. Some of that good, some of it uh, not so good. Now, I, I know at this at some point we're going to be talking about interposition again, um, but I, I understand there are a couple of uh, current issues that uh, that are on your mind. Is that where you'd like to, to begin today's Constitution classroom? There's a couple of things that I think your listeners might be very interested in. First of all, there is a proposal right now mentioned in the New York Times for today, and apparently it has some bipartisan support that would expand public education to start before kindergarten and to continue after high school. My concern about this is that this is giving the government, whether it's federal, state, or local, way too much control over what really should be a matter of the family. Last night I had a speaking engagement and the wife of the man who was heading up this organization She was talking with my wife. She is a teacher in a public charter school here in Montgomery. And she said that they are feeding the children in her room, her classroom, feeding them breakfast and feeding them lunch. This means they aren't having breakfast with their family. I can understand there's probably some families where that's not a good situation and The excuse the schools are using is is that because families aren't providing for their children, and after all, if they don't get a good hot lunch, then they're not going to be in a condition to study in the afternoon, so we've got to provide lunch for them. Now, well, they're not getting good breakfast in the morning, so they're coming to school unnourished and unmotivated and can't really study and learn, so now we're providing breakfast. Well, next, we're probably going to hear they can't do their homework at night because they haven't had a good supper. So school's going to provide that. And what's next after that? That, well, they are not sleeping anyway. They're staying up to watch television. So we've got to put them in dormitories and keep them at school constantly. In other words, what's going on here, as I see it, is at all levels, we see government interference with the family. And... These are things that the family should be doing. And I think taking children away from their families probably creates a harm that outweighs any benefits that we get from this. Anyway, that's one of my concerns. Now, another concern is that in the last several weeks, I've become involved in, well, three cases right now, and I'm hearing of a lot more of people whose work or education situations are being threatened because they refuse on religious grounds to get vaccinated for COVID. And some of them have various types of religious objections. Some of them object to the COVID vaccination because at least some of these vaccinations are produced or at least developed using cell lines that come from aborted fetuses. And as they see it, 
Abortion is contrary to the Bible. Abortion violates their religious convictions. And if they are taking a vaccine that is made directly or indirectly from cells from aborted fetuses, then they are complicit in abortion itself. And that's one reason. Others object saying that I consider my body to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, I shouldn't be putting substances into it that I think could be harmful. And as to whether the vaccination is harmful or helpful, well, there's all kinds of argument back and forth on that, and we're not going to be able to settle that here in this program right now. I'll just point out that Christian Elliott has written a very fine essay explaining 18 reasons that he is not going to get the vaccination. Among the things he has pointed out are that the producers of this vaccination have been exempted by law from liability for any damages that might result to people from taking this vaccine. He points out also that the result of the vaccine, from what we can gather, is that it won't prevent you from contracting the virus. It won't contract or prevent you from spreading it, but it will prevent you from getting symptoms or at least greatly weaken your symptoms. Now we're told, and there's some question about this, but we're told that this is a disease that can be spread asymptomatically. What they mean by that is you can carry this and you can be spreading it even though you don't have symptoms. Now the practical effect of this, as I said, is that if the vaccine makes people more asymptomatic but doesn't keep them from contracting it or covering it, the vaccine then is enabling people and facilitating people in carrying it and spreading it to others asymptomatically. Anyway, these are several reasons that he says he's not getting the vaccine, but particularly the religious reasons are what we're concerned about here. And the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VII of that act, prohibits the government from discriminating against anybody on the basis of their religious convictions. And it goes on to say that religion, this is defined in the Civil Rights Act, religion includes all aspects of religious belief and action unless the employer cannot accommodate the employee's religious belief without undue hardship. And that's where the issue is probably going to come down. Can the employer accommodate without undue hardship? Well, the first case that I have is probably going to be by far the most difficult. This involves a man who is a registered nurse, but the problem is he is serving in a retirement home where he is in daily and regular contact with elderly people who we gather are probably more vulnerable to COVID than the general population. So it might be easier for the nursing home in this case to show than for others to show that this would cause an undue hardship because if we exempt this person from the vaccination, that's going to make 
our population vulnerable, and we've got a population already here in this retirement home that is especially vulnerable. So that's going to be the most difficult. The next case that I have involves a young lady who is a student in radio technology. And as part of her training, they are expected to go through some rotations. And one of these rotations involves visiting a state medical laboratory and observing the conduct of an autopsy. And the state medical laboratory, not the school, but the state medical laboratory is saying, we won't let students come in and observe unless they have a COVID vaccination. And in this case, I've talked with the state medical examiner about this, and he says, we're doing this primarily for that student's protection, not that the student would be that much of a spreader necessarily, but we're doing it for the student's protection. And the reason is, I don't want to get overly graphic here, but when they're conducting an autopsy, they're using an oscillating saw that will cut into the cadaver and release chemicals into the atmosphere and so on. So this can be a dangerous thing, but he is suggesting that there may be ways of working this out, such as letting her watch from behind a screen or letting her observe while wearing not just a mask, but some special types of masks. But then the third that we have involves a man who is a project manager for a company that produces materials that are used in the space program. And he has been terminated from his position because he is objected on religious grounds to taking a vaccination. Now, the interesting thing about his work is that he is working almost entirely out of his home. He meets with other people on the job, maybe once every couple of weeks, but he doesn't interact with customers at all. And anyway, he has said that he's willing to wear a mask, he's willing to wear gloves if he's handling tools, willing to space his desk from other people and so on. And we will explain a little more about this and a couple other ramifications about it after the break. and pounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Zippy and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you want to do what's best for them, to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for Cats was coming out because I had seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 
awesome and amazing day. Hey there, friends. It's John and Chelsea Jubilee. And today we have a message for you women out there. Are you premenopausal, postmenopausal, or maybe you're in the middle of menopause right now? Ouch. Listen, we have thousands of clients that have reported reversing all of their symptoms of menopause. Or maybe you have thyroid imbalances. Same thing for those women. Listen, this is your time. Absolutely. You can reverse all of those symptoms and you can be your real joyful, exuberant, and lean self again. Ladies, I don't care if six doctors told you you can't lose that fat after menopause or in menopause. You can. We have done it hundreds and hundreds of times, even in a medical setting documented. So make your action call today. Log on to EnergizeHealth.com, EnergizeHealth.com, or call 888-444-8895. That's 888-444-8895. The following are real life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1 800 990 6976. I initially was scared to call and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one. One easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. We welcome you back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as I was I was listening to you list some of these examples in the last segment, um, a memory popped up, and I'm, I'm remembering the AIDS crisis of, of the 1980s and 90s, and I'd, I'd like to get your take on, on how that might fit into this discussion. I think that has a direct relevance to what's going on here, because... You know, back in the early days of the AIDS crisis, we didn't know that much about how it was spread. And we, and by we, I'm including the population as a whole, and that includes doctors and other people who were in a position to have more expertise than the general public. But there was concern. Let's say parents, for example, were concerned that in a public school, a child might be attending that school that had AIDS, maybe the child had inherited this from the child's parents or maybe acquired it in some other way, but parents were concerned about having their children in a school where a child with AIDS was and so on. Now, probably some of our listeners right now will think that's foolish. And maybe in retrospect, we can say on the information we have now that it was. It now appears that AIDS is being spread and can still be spread only by sexual contact and so on. But there was concern in those days that it might be spread by washing your hands in the restroom or by coughing and sneezing or for the toilet seat, things like this. And now we look at people that objected to this and say that they were being unfair and they were persecuting those with AIDS. But do you understand that they were concerned about their own children? And 
they didn't know how AIDS was spread at that time. Now, as we look back on it, we know that it's not as dangerous as it was thought then. Well, who knows what we're going to look back with the coronavirus on 15, 20 years from now. And we may think that so much of this hype that we went through, locking down so much of the economy for these states and requiring masks, requiring distancing, closing churches, so many of the things that were done like this, we may be thinking that this was just utterly utter silliness and it was so unfair to businesses, to churches, and so many others by doing this. But there are people today who are doing that, and I think we have to concede that those who are seeking lockdowns, in many instances at least, have done so out of very sincere concern. Well, getting back to the man that I was talking about, the man with the project manager of this company, it just seems to me that of all of these people that I've talked about, he is in by far the best position. Because as I say, he only has to go in to meet with other employees and officials once every couple of weeks. He's perfectly willing to wear a mask or set his desk apart from others or do other things to make sure that he keeps others safe during this process. But he is facing the loss of his job because he says for religious reasons, he will not get a COVID vaccination. And it just seems in this circumstance that there is very little reason, even based on today's knowledge, why this would need to be required. You know, there's another interesting thing about this issue too, and that is, remember going back a little further in time, back to World War II and back to the Nuremberg trials and the Nuremberg Code. Now the Nuremberg Code provides in Article 6, Section 1, that any preventative diagnostic and therapeutic medical intervention is only to be carried out with the prior free and informed consent of the person concerned based on adequate information. The consent should, where appropriate, be expressed and may be withdrawn by the person concerned at any time or for any reason without disadvantage or prejudice. Now, we've got a vaccine here that I think you could probably say has been rushed through and I'll say rushed through with the best of motives, but is still really in the experimental stages in many ways. And to force this on people right now, force them with the threat that they're going to lose their jobs if they don't comply or lose the right to travel or all sorts of other things like this, this could violate the Nuremberg Code as well as the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Anyway, so we'll see, after we send a demand letter, we'll see whether the company in this case is willing to consider making any kind of accommodations for this person. But I'm sure what I'm talking about here does nothing but just scratch the surface of many, many similar situations that are going on all over the country. And I'd say to our listeners, if you are aware of situations like this, you need to contact the Foundation for Moral Law, morallaw.org, that's where I serve as senior counsel, or other organizations that participate in the defense of issues like this, Alliance Defending Freedom is one. 
Anyway, so we'll set that issue aside right now, but clearly this is a matter of great concern because our most precious right, the right of free exercise of religion, is at stake here, and it may well be it's at stake for very, very limited justification. Well, let's move on to this issue of interposition. We've talked about this issue for the last couple of weeks, and interposition is, in a sense, like civil disobedience. Civil disobedience occurs when an individual believes that a order given by the government violates the higher law of God, and he chooses to disobey the government in obedience to that higher law of God. But then in addition to that, we have what we call interposition. And this occurs when a government official, usually we call it a lower-ranking government official, like, for example, in the United States, maybe a governor or a legislator or a county official or a county sheriff, somebody in a lesser position of government other than the federal government that this, that this person is standing up against the higher official, the federal government, interposing, that is, placing himself in his office between the federal official and the local people that the local rep person has been elected or appointed to represent. Good example of interposition in history is the Declaration of Independence, where our founding fathers interposed themselves between the people in the colonies that they represented and the King of England. Going back before, we see interposition with the Magna Carta, when Stephen Langdon, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the barons and the bishops of England interposed against King John and forced him to sign the Magna Carta, by which he agreed to accept the ancient God-given rights of Englishmen. Anyway, we are facing a situation in America today where interposition may be necessary in ways that it has not been for a long time. I'm looking especially at some of the things Congress is considering doing here, imposing the Equality Act, which has passed the House and is stalled right now in the Senate, hopefully will stay stalled, but which in many ways would infringe upon the free exercise of employers, of churches, of many others. The For the People Act, the Voting Act, gun control acts that violate the Second Amendment, federal regulations, and so on. But besides these things that Congress is seeking to do, the Biden administration is in the process right now of instituting executive orders in some cases, just going ahead to put in executive orders for things that the administration is afraid Congress won't do on their own, so we'll do them through the executive. And the fact is, the Biden administration in the first 100 days has issued more executive orders than any previous president, including President Trump.
And once again, we are back. This is Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, I appreciate uh, appreciate the example you were giving as we went to break. Uh, more executive orders in the first 100 days of uh, President Biden's presidency than, than ever before. I wasn't keeping track, but I knew it was a lot. That is correct. I'll just give you a few of these. One of them raises the minimum wage of federal contract workers to 15 per hour. There's a bill that would raise it across the board to 15 per hour. One of the practical effects of that will be that many people will not be able to get jobs because there are employers that just can't afford to pay 15 an hour. And so rather than working for less, the person will have to be let go. Reversing the Trump policy of banning refugees from key regions and enable flights from those regions to begin within delays. This could be a COVID threat as well as a crime threat and in many other ways. Forming the President's Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States and an executive order that authorized sanctions on international criminal court actions, establishing the White House Gender Policy Council, and who knows what kind of orders that organization is going to come up with, reaffirming that all children should be guaranteed an educational environment free from discrimination on the basis of sex, which includes sexual orientation and gender identity. Basically, the effect of this will be forcing schools to allow boys who identify as girls to play on girls' teams, use girls' dressing rooms and showers and so on, all sorts of things like this that could be very dangerous. Just a few others, restricting state access to voter registration and the like, revoking a series of seven Trump administrative actions that had eased regulatory orders on various aspects of civic buildings and the like. Those are being reversed. Revoking a Trump era proclamation that limited legal immigration during the COVID pandemic. That's one of the orders that Trump gave that probably saved thousands upon thousands of lives in the beginning stages of the pandemic. And now Biden is releasing all that. He wants to crack down and have a lockdown and other ways. But when we're talking about illegal aliens coming in, easing the restrictions so they can come in more easily than before. Many other things we can talk about here, providing protection for asylum seekers from Central America and the like, and directing relevant agencies to ensure that LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers have equal access to protections from the U.S. government. And I'm just kind of going through these as I can here. We're sending the Trump administration's memo requiring immigrants to repay the government if they receive public benefits and rescinding the Mexico City policy. That was a policy that the Trump administration had that prohibited government aid in, to foreign countries if that aid was going to be used to promote abortions. That is rescinded. Now federal aid will go to promote abortions in foreign countries. Restricting COVID travel restrictions for individuals traveling to the U.S. from various areas of China, the United Kingdom, South Africa, and other areas like this, and reversing the Trump administration's ban on transgender Americans joining the military. Well, there's a whole bunch more that I can mention here, but you get the idea. 
that the Biden administration is trying to do by regulation and executive order what it might not be able to get through Congress. And the basic lawmaking responsibility of government rests with the legislative branch, Congress, not with the executive branch. The role of the executive should be to enforce the laws that Congress passes, not seek to pass the laws of its own and just simply call them executive orders. Well, here is one of the real fortunate things about all of this right now, Brian, and that's that the states are reacting. And states should have been reacting to executive overreach long ago. And it seems like many states are starting to react against these things now. And that is a very positive thing. Possibly the best example of all of this might be in the state of Idaho. And if we have Idaho listeners here, I would certainly encourage them to contact their state senators and urge them to support House Bill 322. As I understand it, it has already passed the House and is now in the Senate. But essentially, what House Bill 322, it's an all-encompassing bill that begins by saying the state of Idaho declares a procedure to make null and void and of no force and effect federal executive orders, agency orders, rules, policy directives, regulations, acts of Congress, or federal court rulings, hereafter referred to collectively as federal actions, that go beyond the powers enumerated to the federal government in the Constitution of the United States. Now you recall that ours is a government of limited delegated powers. We have enumerated certain powers that Congress can exercise, other powers that the court can exercise, other powers that the president and those working for the president can exercise. And the 10th Amendment very clearly says the powers not delegated to the federal government by the Constitution or prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Now, what Idaho is doing here is they're simply asserting their rights under the 10th Amendment. They're saying whenever the federal government, whether it's the president, the Congress, or the court, tries to do something that goes beyond the powers that are delegated to it in the Constitution, we are reserving the right as a state to declare those policies, those laws, those court orders, whatever they may be, to be null and void as they affect the state of Idaho. They go on to have a procedure for this, that if any member of the legislature believes that there is any federal action being taken in Idaho that violates the Constitution in this way, he is to bring that to the attention of a legislative committee. That committee, within 15 days of receiving the complaint, is to conduct a survey of the committee, determine from this legislative committee whether a majority of the committee agree that this is a violation. And if it is, they are to issue a procedure by which they'll have a public meeting, people can come and comment, and as a result of that comment, they can declare this is null and void in our state. 
And once that one legislator has made that complaint during this 15-day period, and then period after the waiting period, the 30 days after that until the hearing and so on, no state official may take any action whatsoever to enforce this federal action. They go on to say that this is not the most likely or common thing in a bill, but they go on to say that an emergency existing, therefore, which emergency is hereby declared to exist, this act shall be in for, full force and effect on or after its passage and approval. In other words, once we pass this, this is going to go into effect immediately. Now, Alabama, where I live, has a bill that has gone through the Senate already and is going to the House now. And this bill would make it a Class C misdemeanor for any state or local official to enforce any federal gun law. This is restricted to gun laws here, but any federal gun law or executive order that regulates the ownership, use, or possession of firearms, ammunition, possession of firearms, ammunition, or firearm accessories. And any state official that seeks to enforce a federal law to that effect will be punished by up to 90 days in jail or fined up to $5,000. And the way it is stated here, this is a piece of legislation that will fulfill the oath of office that each of us has taken to protect and defend the Constitution as it relates to the Second Amendment. One of the Democrat opponents of this, Senator Roger Smitherman of Birmingham, has criticized this. He's opposed to this. Frankly, Smitherman opposes everything that you and I would favor here in Alabama, but he says, we are going to get sued, and we are going to lose. Well, I wouldn't say that Senator Smithman is all that astute a judge of the Constitution. And I think that the Alabama legislature is on pretty solid ground here. And I think it's going to pass the other house. My hope is that the governor will go ahead and sign it. But anyway, so that's what's going on in Idaho. That's what's going on in Alabama. And we'll see some other states after the break. Balance of Nature's Fruits and Vegetables in a Capsule. Changing the world one life at a time. You guys, your customer service and everything, you guys are great. And the commercials talk about it, but I don't know if it really gives it true justice. People need to know, this is maybe the most amazing product I've ever tried. It's so pure, it tastes so good, I'm just blown away by it. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code... USA. At the American Veterinary Medical Association annual convention in Washington, D.C., I spoke with Dr. John Howe, AVMA president, about One Health. One Health is really a collaboration between physicians and veterinarians or public health officials. For example, in Minnesota, our state public health veterinarian deals with zoonotic diseases, rabies, for example. Animals are sentinels for humans, and humans are sentinels for some infections in animals. There's more valuable information at AVMA. 
The following are real-life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. I initially was scared to call, and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors, and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. Hi, this is Brian Hyde. Several months ago, I was introduced to a small Idaho technology company called PureLight that's invented a new type of light bulb that's simply amazing. Their LED light bulbs make all other light bulbs obsolete. And I've actually had a chance to put them to work in my own home. Now, these are bulbs that eliminate odors, including pet odors and chemical smells. They eliminate mold. They eliminate deadly germs, even the tough-to-kill ones like MRSA or E. coli or salmonella. They eliminate smells. They eliminate deadly chemicals from the air, just like a $1,000-plus air purification machine would do, only for a whole lot less with these Pure Light LED bulbs. And you know what? They work as advertised, and they're already being used in thousands of homes, businesses, schools, assisted living facilities, medical facilities, government buildings, and more. Find out for yourself. Go to pure-light.com. That's pure-light.com, the next generation of light bulb. Once again, we are back. This is the final segment of Constitution Classroom for today with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, I love the examples you were giving of states that are taking states' rights seriously again. I'm, I'm happy to hear that it's in fashion in some places. What are some of the other areas where you're hearing some good news? Well, as I say, you ain't heard nothing yet. It's, there's more, much more. For example, now, we've talked about it here with Idaho and with Alabama, actions in the legislature. Now, in Oklahoma, we have an action by the governor. After all, we're talking about the Biden administration with executive order. Well, the Oklahoma governor, Kevin Stitt, has just taken the position that if the Biden administration can issue an executive order that restricts our gas and oil business in Oklahoma and interferes with our people's ability to make a living in ways that we believe the Constitution protects, then it is my authority as governor to issue an an executive order that nullifies what Biden has done. So the Oklahoma governor has signed an executive order that attacks the Biden administration's attack on energy and basically protects oil and gas in Oklahoma from what he calls an executive power grab from Washington, D.C. And anyway, so there's just one example of this being done by the governor. Part of his order just simply says, President Biden's executive order 13990 is in contravention of Article 2, Section 2, and the 10th Amendment of the United States Constitution. And so the executive order of the governor effectively nullifies the president's executive order. 
And of course, he can only nullify it as applies to Oklahoma. If the other 49 states want to let the order stand in their states, they're free to do so. But with this order, if the order stands up in court, if it's challenged with this order, that those gas and oil regulations that the Biden administration has imposed are of no force and effect in Oklahoma. And now we see that it's going on in other states too. For example, Anthony Sabatini, who is a Republican lawmaker in the Florida House of Representatives, has said nullifying unconstitutional federal laws is both legal and it's also the right thing to do. It's silly to sit around and wait for something you know is unconstitutional. It's time to stand up and fight back. And the methods we need to use are ones already being used by the left. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, you think a few years ago, the left was talking about sanctuary cities, and even in a few cases, sanctuary states. We were critical of that, but the Trump administration responding to these sanctuary cities where they agree we will not arrest people who are here, here illegally, we will not aid federal officials if they're trying to arrest people that are here illegally, even if they've committed crimes in our jurisdiction. Well, the Trump administration said in response to this, we're not going to stop you from doing that. However, if you're not going to cooperate with us in enforcing the basic law and order, arresting people who've committed crimes when they're illegal immigrants, then we're going to stop some of your federal aid. Anyway, so that's where the Trump administration has stood on that, and some of that was still being litigated at the time President Trump had to leave office. But what Sabatini talks about being done in the Florida House of Representatives, we see things similar to this. Arizona has been passing laws that restrict various federal policies on immigration, saying, look, we have a border here in Arizona. We're going to enforce our laws that are going to protect our people from illegal aliens, whether the federal government is going to do it or not. Montana's legislature has something similar that they are proposing right now. And there are similar proposals to nullify federal laws on a variety of subjects dealing with gun control and other subjects, probably more gun control than any other. And among the states considering these are Arkansas and Missouri and South Carolina, West Virginia, Texas, New Hampshire, North Carolina, and there are others. South Dakota right now has a proposal in its legislature that would allow the state to nullify any order that the Biden administration proposes if that order goes beyond federal authority of the Constitution and violates the authority that is restricted to the, to the states. North Dakota, the Speaker of the House in North Dakota, is also talking about a similar bill in North Dakota that would restrict them, as are several counties in North Dakota. Logan County in Oklahoma a couple months ago was one of the first to restrict, federal, restrict and nullify federal laws. And I am sure that what I've done here, talking about some of these things, has done nothing more than scratch the surface. There is a lot more of this going on all across the country. And it's important. First of all, 
it is asserting a constitutional right. And second, it is standing against a constitutional usurpation. And we need to do this if we are going to preserve our Constitution. The idea that no federal official, including even unelected federal judges, should feel that they have carte blanche authority to do anything they want to do, and everybody at the state and local level will simply come to attention and salute and say, yes, sir, and march and lockstep to the unconstitutional orders of a federal judge or a federal Congress or a federal bureaucrat. And so I would urge our listeners, consider this doctrine of interposition. If you need to look at this a little more, go back and view a couple of the past programs here where we've talked about this doctrine of interposition, how it applies in scripture, how it applies in the Constitution, how has it been applied in history, and see the way we're doing it today. And consider people on your county commission or your city council, people in your state legislature. If you have a contact with your governor and your governor is sympathetic to this sort of thing, talk to them. But anyway, if this is going on all across the country, those in power in Washington, D.C. are going to have to take note. If one county does it, well, they may ignore them or they may squelch them. If a couple do it, they may feel they have to act and they will maybe step in with a vengeance and try to bring them into compliance. But if this is going on all across the country at the state, local, and at the county and municipal level, this is being done all across the country like this. They're going to say, we've got to take note of this, and maybe we better back off on some of this. Anyway, this whole principle of interposition is something that we need to understand because it's a central part of what free government is all about. It's not only do we have the Tenth Amendment that says these powers are reserved to the states, but there needs to be a practical means by which we assert these rights if they are being violated at the federal level and if the federal courts do not seem inclined to protect us. Anyway, so I urge our listeners here, be familiar with the Constitution, go through it, see what it says, and particularly in this area of interposition, contact those people that you know in government so that you can take similar action within your state, your county, your city. Well, Brian, have you heard of others like this going on? Um, no, not in the detail that you have been offering. But I have to tell you, Colonel, this this is very reassuring because I know that uh, we're all at different levels of understanding. But I would think most people who are paying attention probably have a pretty strong sense that the federal government really seems to be consolidating power in ways it was never intended to. So it makes me very happy to hear you list these examples of states that understand what federalism means and how how they need to claim and use those rights that, that or those powers that are rightfully theirs. I think it's fair to say that the founding fathers never anticipated a government that would grow to the size that it is. Washington began his administration with 300, 300 federal civilian employees governing a nation that by that time was about four and a half million people. And now, of course, we see a population that has increased a hundredfold, but we have seen federal civilian employees 
increased 10,000-fold. We have over 3 million federal civilian employees today. And anyway, so this growth is something the Founding Fathers never anticipated it would grow like this. Even Hamilton, who favored a larger federal government than, say, Jefferson or Madison did, even Hamilton would be shocked at all of this. So let's reclaim the republic that our Founding Fathers gave us. <laughs> 